Well, welcome to the podcast. We have Bill Elder from Elder Technical Rescue, all the way from grandiose Philadelphia on the podcast with us today. How you doing, Bill? Uh, I, wouldn't, I don't know about grandiose, but I'm doing well. I'm doing well. <laughs> doing well. And uh, why don't you, for the listener out there, give a bit of a background about who you are, what's your background, and what you're doing now. Yeah, so thanks for having me, Mark. Um, I've been in the, the fire rescue service for 17 years now. Uh, most of that time was spent in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania. A lot of it was with King of Prussia um, and the uh, technical rescue task force that we were involved with up there. I did some, uh, some industry work earlier in my career. And then in 2017, I started my business, Elder Technical Rescue Services. Because I was I was doing a lot of teaching and curriculum development and things like that for the fire academy and and, and teaching you know the state programs, but uh, I really just kind of wanted to be able to branch out on my own, offer my own programs, own curriculum, and, and keep them kind of updated with the most recent trends and things like that. So I started my business in 2017, mostly doing training, uh, and now we're starting to expand more into the the rescue business side, the industry side. Um, little bit in 2021 and, and definitely moving forward in 2022. Right on. So today on the podcast, we're going to chat about a blog you did in regards to podcast 66 with Shaggy and Micah. And then yep. we're going to uh, break down into some confined space, you know, regulatory stuff, I guess, some differences, some stuff that you need to know, need to do just for the lay viewer out there, or lay listener that may not know exactly what that's all about. Yeah, that's super sexy stuff, the, the OSHA regs, right? Exactly. That's why we're starting with the podcast stuff. Yeah. <laughs> now, you wrote a blog about this. It was pretty cool. Um, I'm quite uh, happy to see people pick up on that. We've had a lot of real good feedback on that podcast, 66. And secondary attachment points was kind of the first part of the blog that you had seen there. And I won't read the blog. I'm not going to try to pull a Jocko here and do a, you know, a book review. But uh if you want to just kind of give the highlights of what you're talking about there with your secondary attachment points. Yeah. So it's funny. I, I started the, I re-listened to that podcast, most of it today, uh, but I didn't go back and reread what the heck I wrote. So <laughs> yeah, I think the, I think the main point was, uh, well, for the most point, obviously I, I agree with you guys um, because you guys touched on, you know, having that secondary attachment point going straight to, the victim, right? The, the, you know, a harness that's on the victim essentially. And I think I made the point that I, I remember learning that early in my career. And even at that point, you know, like, you know, the first one or two rope classes I ever took, I remember thinking to myself, how does this make any sense whatsoever? Um, so I, I personally don't do that. I don't, I don't teach that. Uh, what I typically have is that secondary attachment point you know, from, coming from the map, and, uh, and I just connect it to the top of the basket, right, the stokes or the sked or whatever, basically to, to have that secondary point of attachment holding the, the litter or whatever the victim's in. You know, people will say, well, you're going to have a swing fall. Well, yeah, but, you know, it, if something happens catastrophically, and I use that, and I lose that map, then there's going to be there's going to be some trauma there anyway. Um, so, and my thought is, is I, I control that litter and that litter is going to give some protection to the victim. 
you know, rather than suspending everything from the patient's, you know, pelvic harness or whatever you attach it to. So that, that's, that's generally what I do. Um, I think that's most of what I talked about. Is that correct? Yeah, it's kind of what you wrote there. <laughs> There's a couple points on that I'd really like to chat with you because you've been around the block a few, few years, 17. You've seen probably some of the beginning craft that I saw in my career by the sounds of it. And it's interesting. Do you think that training scars or group think or whatever you want to call that has a big influence with that kind of training? Because I thought the same thing when I looked at it, it went, that's going to break that poor patient's back. And everybody thinks the same thing, but yet nobody did anything about it for like a decade, maybe longer. Why? Well, I, I think it, it falls back on critical thinking. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, and this, this will probably segue into another thing that you guys talked about, but, you know, I don't like to teach to a test. I'd rather teach you to think critically and think about maybe different ways of doing things um, rather than teaching you one way to, to pass a test, right? Because I think what happens is we get stuck on one specific technique that maybe isn't the best or maybe doesn't make the most sense, but well, that's how they want to see it on the probe board test or whatever. So that's what we do over and over and over again. Um, so yeah, I, I think if we, if we embrace critical thinking and emphasize critical thinking in our teaching, then people are going to be better off in the long run. Now, of course, they're going to have to, to take that and run with it and, and develop those skills and refresh and all that stuff. But I think at the end of the day, we shouldn't be teaching someone this is the way to do it. We should be teaching them this is a way to do it because of X, Y, Z. If you have a different scenario or a different reason to, to vary from this, as long as it's safe, then, then go ahead. You know what I mean? There's, there's no one way to do things. So go back to teaching principles and let them figure it out on their own. Yeah. And you, I think you mentioned that, uh, you know, principles or, or practice or whatever you said in the podcast. And, and yeah, I mean, I agree a hundred percent. You know, I teach a lot of classes and, you know, I, I, it's, I have a curriculum, you know, based on an FBA 1006 and it's mostly the same, right. But each class is a little different because, the, the experience level might be a little different or the specific gear they have might be a little different. Um, you know, as long as I hit the principles though, and they accomplish what they need to accomplish, then I feel good at the end of the day. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It almost goes back to that. I think it was Pat and I did the quote. It was something like, don't tell people how to do things, tell them like what to do or something and let them surprise you with the results or whatnot. Yeah. It's yeah, get some principle based training in there and let people figure it out and, you know, go forward. Right, exactly. Now, do you think maybe like 17 years you've been around? I've been around a little bit longer than that, almost another decade. And <laughs> uh, do you, th I mean, when we started, there was no NFPA standard for litters. When right. I started, we had these crap litters that you wouldn't put your dog in, sort of thing. And I'm wondering, do you think maybe that had something to do with it? People didn't want to attach to that litter. We used to have the two piece break aparts. When I say two piece break aparts, they used to break apart like lengthways, not sideways. Like you could actually turn this little handle and it'll like dump your patient out the bottom like a bucket. Wow. And so I wonder if maybe that's where this started and like in the fire service, you know, parts of it advanced and we forgot why we were rigging like that to begin with to solve a different problem that disappeared. I don't know. I mean, does that 
your thoughts on that at all with that you know, new NFPA standard? New, it's probably two revisions now on um, packaging devices. Yeah, and I mean, maybe that, I mean, that's probably related to your, your training scars comment, right? I mean, you know, you that's the way the initial kind of wave maybe learned it. And, you know, what, as the equipment changed, as the litters changed, we didn't change the technique, right? Until, you know, fast forward however many years and you start doing things like, like eiders and things like that, where people come together and are like, wait, why are we still doing it? Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's a plausible explanation for sure. I, I'd agree with that. There you go. All right. So the next thing in the blog you wrote about was the operations and technician level. And this is, I'd really like to get your opinion on this one because you had said, and now I'm going to read a bit. I said I wasn't, but ah, so sue me. I was in favor of moving the on-rope skills, repelling and ascending into the technician level in the most recent update to NFPA 1006. The guys made a great point that allowing a student to repel before lowering another student gives them a chance to get the feel for the descent control device, blah, 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 blah. So I'll let you kind of carry on from that part. Yeah, so what what I was running into... Uh, not only as a as an instructor, but as a team leader, was we would have guys on the team who were very good with rigging, you know, very good with working as as a member of the team. You know, maybe they brought other things to the table um, in addition, you know, and other disciplines, things like that. And you know, at the time, we were so married to this pro board thing, right? Oh, we got to get pro board. We got to get pro board. And you know, you'd go for your pro board. It was, you know, it was when it, they changed it. They changed ops to level one. You know, yeah. well, well, we're going to go and we're going to get you pro board rope level one. Well, in pro board rope level one, which is now essentially ops again, you know, you have to ascend X amount of feet and then switch over and descend. And, you know, for some of these guys, that was that was challenging due to, you know, body composition, um, you know, level of comfort, you know, level of comfort with heights, things like that, you know, but they were phenomenal rigging and, you know, across the board on everything else. So that became, that became a problem, you know, like it, it was almost a, a detractor. It discouraged people from going and doing the training and getting the certification because they knew they didn't want to do this one skill. So when the uh, revision came out, uh, I think I did a public comment, I forget, but I was like, hey, why don't we move the on-rope skills? And it probably wasn't my idea, obviously. It was probably someone else's. But, you know, I at least agreed with, let's move the, you know, the individual on-rope skills into the technician level. That way, we can get guys trained and certified at the ops level, and we don't have to force them to get out and do these physically demanding on-rope skills. Um now, if an agency wants to exceed the minimum ops level, then they can still do that. You know what I mean? But, but why, you know, why discourage people from getting involved with rope rescue when, um, when we don't have to? It's interesting because I work with or volunteer with BC Search and Rescue. And I'm on the rope uh, program with that as well. And they're the same way. I mean, they're, they've got different names for it, but basically call it ops and technician for, you know, the lack of a better words here. Um, and their ops or their, you know, rope one, you don't go on rope, you go up to the edge and that's it. And then your rope two, you go over the edge. Um, 
So it's interesting that those are two very distinct organizations and BC SAR doesn't have a lot of fire rescue influence in it. It has a lot of Kirk Mothner influence in it. Uh, I'm not saying Kirk, you know, did that change, but just to, for the, the listener out there. So it's interesting that both of those organizations have gone that way. And now do you think it's for, you know, like you kind of said, it helps with that lay person helping out. It helps that department or that SAR team because they can have people that, you know, may not want to break the plane and go defy gravity, still be able to assist with the rescue. I mean, is that kind of what you're saying there? Yeah. And I mean, if you, if you look at the ops level, they, the ops level, they can actually break the plan. I, and I don't remember the, the number, but one of the JPRs is um, navigating an edge while, while on rope. So like when I teach my ops classes, I basically teach team-based operate, like a team-based lowering and raising operation. So the students still get on rope, um, you know, but their, their destiny is, is in control of their, their classmates, essentially. Um, you know, which, and to Micah and Shaggy's point, you know, why are you going to let them lower somebody else if they can't lower themselves? And, and at that, you know, I get that. And, and I, for the most part, I agree with that, but you know, that's not the first thing we lead off with. You know what I mean? Like, like we typically do the raising and lowering operations with a dummy on it first. So they understand the equipment, they understand the hand positions and things like that before we put someone else on the rope. Um, you know, and then of course, usually I'm the first one that goes down. So, you know, there's, is it, you know, are there pros and cons both ways? Absolutely. Um, and personally, you know, I think that in the industry as a whole, we should be getting back to more individual an emphasis on individual rope skills. So on that token, the fact that ops is almost entirely all team-based function, you know, that, that's contrary to, to where I think we should be going, which is seeing more individual rope skills, if that makes sense. Yeah, you don't want people hiding in the background somewhere. That's that one that everybody's like, well, because I know it used to happen and it used to be put them on belay, which was probably right. the worst place in the world to put them. But yeah. That was the fire service back in the late 90s. Ah, just throw them on belay. Yeah, because like now you have no belay whatsoever. Right, exactly. Well, especially with the Prussics. I mean, the Tana Prussic belay, I mean, I like I mean I I teach it if I have to, but but honestly, I pretty much tell guys like this is a technician level belay. I mean, this is it's the cheapest belay, but it takes the most skill. And let's be honest, when you leave this class, how often are you going to practice it? You know, and they they're like, yeah, you're probably right. You know what I mean? Like, so um, yeah, the Tana Prussic belay. Oh God, I've seen some some horrible techniques with that. Yeah, and that's you know that's a whole podcast by itself. That's an Irish presentation. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, the last thing on the blog we talked about and you talked about after was the Pro Board and IFSAC certification. And you've got this quote here from Micah. I think Pro Board is dumbing down the American Fire Service. And you had written this is single handedly my favorite quote in this podcast. Yeah, I, heard, oh. I listened to it again today, and I was like, oh my god, I love it. So let's just how about you just take run with the ball on that and just expand on what your thoughts are with regards to that. Well, I mean, I mean, Micah made a lot of good points in that, that, that episode. 
Um, and, and I'm sure Shaggy did too. That was, that one quote was just uh, Micah's quote. But the the problem is, and I think I gave the example in my in my blog. I, I, you know, when I did my confined space level two pro board test, we had a basically what was an ops level confined space. So it was fairly large. You know, there weren't really any there weren't any atmospheric hazards. I wasn't on air or anything. I get lowered down, throw a dummy in a spec pack or whatever. They haul the dummy out. They haul me out, and we all became confined space rescue technicians that day. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm the only one that went in, and I didn't even really do anything that was technician level. You know what I mean? So, so it's just it, it's the system's broken, unfortunately, and and you know that's not the only discipline where you know people skated by like that. I mean, I'm pretty sure when I did my rope tech level two, when we built the high line, I'm pretty sure the only skill I actually did when we built the high line was like a tensionless hitch. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, but it's, they, they evaluate that as a team, but then they hand you an individual certification. So the system is just kind of busted. Um, and, you know, I thought it was really interesting when you guys are talking about it, you guys are talking about it as though, People don't care or they aren't interested in it. But man, around here in Pennsylvania, I mean, I literally have people call me up and they ask me for training in a class and they're like, well, we're going to get a pro board cert out of it. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, it's, you know, I, I, I can deliver the, the training for you. If you want to do a pro board program, then you can test out through an accredited, accredited agency. But, you know, private companies can't be pro board accredited. So you're going to have to go through, you know, the fire academy to, to do that. So it's, it's just kind of interesting that, you know, like I said, where you guys are at and I get, you know, you're Canada, the other guys are Texas and, and Wyoming. Like, Wyoming. So, I mean, you know, it's not real big out there, but man, over here, it's, it's huge. Um, and it drives me nuts. It, it drives me absolutely nuts because it's such, it's, it's just such a broken system. So, I mean, I guess to clarify that a little bit, where I'm from, the province of British Columbia, we have yeah. what's known as the THARP program, Technical High Angle Rope Rescue Program. And industries that would need rope rescue, so say scaffolders, let's just go with them, or tower crane, that's where it started. They pay an extra small percentage into their WorkSafe, their provincial WorkSafe insurance fund. So instead of paying, you know, a dollar per hundred dollars of, salary maybe they pay a buck ten and I'm, I'm pulling these numbers out of the air but you get the idea and that 10 cents goes into a pot that the fire departments can draw from in order to train up instructors to train firefighters to perform those rescues so it's not that we have to be pro board or don't have to be pro board but all of the fire department training we deliver has to be delivered by a tharp certified agency so ronin and you know dynamic raven um I'm, I'm sure there's more the Justice Institute, which is our fire academy. They're right. all ARP certified instructors. But like you said, really only the, the fire academy has the pro board in IFSAC seals because the rest of us are private companies. Right, exactly. So, but uh, now, do you, how do you think that can be changed? I mean, we all sit here and go, everybody agrees, both sides of the 49th parallel, that the system <laughs> is terrible. So we've got what, you know, 
37 million in Canada and 370 million, not quite in the United States. We're pushing, you know, 400 million people agree. This is a terrible system. How do we fix it? Well, I mean, obviously things like this help, but, you know, who are the people listening to this are probably the people that agree with us, right? So, you know, this this is helpful, but, you know, I, I try to do as much education as I can when I receive those phone calls or when I talk to my students that are in my classes. And because what it really comes down to just a basic misunderstanding. I mean, what what really drives me nuts is, you know, pro board and IPSAC, they, they credit the certification process. They don't credit the actual training or curriculum or course. But, you know, you see people referring to, oh, well, this class is pro board or this course is pro board. And it's like, well, no, it's not. It, they're really supposed to be two separate processes. You're supposed to get your training and then you're supposed to go and take your your certification test, you know, and and really they're supposed to be two different um, organizations doing them, right? Two different parties. So, you know, I'll, I think for me, a lot of it is just trying to educate people. I mean, I know I'm not going to change the world overnight and I know there's going to just be some people that won't listen. Um, but again, just, just kind of educating people on, on how the process is supposed to work. And, um, you know, maybe one day it'll start to get through, probably not in my lifetime, but you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, and it, like you say, it's an interesting dynamic. It's so when I got in the fire service many, many years back, the, that was when the fire departments changed over and started saying, you got to show up with your seals to get hired. Yep. Yep. And so recently now, I mean, 25, 26, 27 years. Now I know of at least four departments in Metro Van that don't require seals anymore because what they're starting to find, I think, is people would get hired by the first department and then still apply in other departments. And I know lateral transferring in the States is a little more common than it is here. But here we're basically a lockstep seniority system. So when I work in Metro Van in a place called Delta, I live in a place called Penticton, I can't come and get a job in Penticton. I would, I'm an acting battalion chief. I would go back to Proby if I right. got a job here. Like my, it, it all just goes away. I mean, my pension doesn't, but my seniority does not move across the city boundary. Exactly. And so what guys and girls were doing is they'd get hired on the first job. And within the first five years, you'd see them jumping to other jobs because these certificates were transferable. Anybody could take them. And it's funny now that, you know, you look at a quarter century later, they're almost rolling. I say you give it another 10 years. We'll be back right to where we were 30 years ago. Where, yeah. Because now all of a sudden, you know, they, the city doesn't want to spend seven weeks training up somebody and then having them walk out the door a year later. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, I, I mean, I know guys that were the same way. Um, one of the guys that teaches me, he's a phenomenal rescuer. And, and, you know, at this point in his career, he's out taking all sorts of classes and bringing back the knowledge and stuff. But, you know, early on in his department, in order to get on, you know, special operations, he needed those seals. Yeah. So there was like a year or two there where he's like, dude, I, I don't want to take the time, you know, to go to this class if I can't get the seal, you know, and 
And it wasn't like it was hit. Like, I mean, he knew there was value in classes where you didn't get a pro board cert, but he needed it, you know, like he needed it for work. Um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't I know. For the wrong reason. Yeah. You know, and so it's just, it's, again, it's just kind of the system that we've built, you know, and, and putting the emphasis on these seals. And quite frankly, this, you know, I mean, like the guy said in the last podcast, it's, the seals don't mean anything, you know, it's just, just means that you were lucky enough to, to pass a test one day and you probably didn't even perform all the skills. If we're going to be honest. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's just, there's not a whole lot of value in it. Um, especially, and that's not even getting into the whole recertification discussion. You know, obviously there is no requirement. So yeah, there'd be a big long pause on that one, right? It would just be oh, yeah. like, what recertification? Right. Yeah. Well, you get guys that, you know, I think I made a, a, a blog post a while ago, like a, you know, are you the, I already took that class rescuer. And I cited like several standards, you know, NFPA, ANSI, whatever saying, you know, kind of pointing out where you need to have refresher trading, but nobody wants to pay attention to those parts of the standards. So, <laughs> cause they don't have to. I mean, and that's one thing I've got to give this ART program in British Columbia is they cover an instructor for a three-year period. So when you you pick a new instructor and they'll cover the overtime, they'll cover all the courses for them to run through it, their fire service instructor, the whole works, and they're considered, they want them to teach for three years. At the end of three years, that instructor is eligible to go take another tech course. So there there is a refresher in there. What a lot of departments now, though, do is they go, we'll leave that person as an instructor and we'll train another person on work safe money. And then we'll have two instructors, right? Or whatever. You see where it starts to go. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, well, I mean, where I'd like to see the, the third party kind of evaluation, so to speak, go is, you know, you go, you know, whatever department brings, you know, elder technical rescue in and does you know rope rescue ops and then you know once they finish the training they're trained up um they bring in Ronin, right they bring in someone else and say okay our guys are trained to rope rescue ops per you know nfpa 1006 2021 edition you know come in and evaluate my team my guys the girls right and and tell me what the strengths are as a team what their strengths are as individuals and then give me areas for improvement, right? Tell me how I can improve the team and tell me how I can improve the individual rescuers as well. You know, and then keep basically keep that documentation as your third party evaluation. Because I think there's more value in that than there is just saying, oh yeah, everyone passed with sufficient, you know, competency to get a seal. You know, no, tell me what I did good. Tell me what I can do better, you know, and then maybe tell me how I can do better. You know what I mean? I, I think that would be ideal. But again, unfortunately, I think people aren't going to want to hear that or do that. They're going to just want a yes or no, and they're going to want that seal. I mean, it's it's another interesting point because with these refreshers and these seals that you talk about is eventually some fire department is going to drop somebody and there's going to be a coroner's inquest or a lawsuit that comes up. I mean, you're looking at this year. I have to reset my level three sprat. Right. I've got. I'm going over to Europe to deal with my IMP one and two. I've got to do 
uh, 20 hours a year to maintain my SAR rope. I go into my professional job that I got to spend 42 hours a week at, of which I ride a rescue. And how many hours do I need to go on rope there? <laughs> Everything else I do, I have to go and research or accrue in, in log hours, except for the fire service. Yeah. And if we ever go to court and they go, you know, wow, if you if you're a rope access tech, every three years you got to do it. If you're this, you've got to do it every five. If you're this, you got to do 20 hours. How come the fire service doesn't have any of this? Well, I mean, NFPA says you got to demonstrate competency every year. So, yeah. but they leave it up to the AHJ. Exactly. Yeah, so that, that buck is going to fall on the chief's desk, essentially, when, when something happens. You know, that's, that's ultimately, that's going to be the end of the story. But I, I don't know if it's just the chiefs that aren't hearing that or they don't understand that or, or what. But, you know, obviously, it's not being implemented. At least, you know, widely, it's not being implemented widely. Well, you're in Philadelphia and I'm in Vancouver. We're in two different countries on two <laughs> different coasts and we're having the same conversation. Yeah, it's the same, you know, same rodeo. So um, the next part of this, confined space, regulatory stuff. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, bore everybody out there with it, but I think there's a lot. Well, I mean, going down and partaking with things like Grimp LA and things like that, I th there was quite a variety of what people felt was acceptable. I don't want to use the word behavior, but maybe procedures for a couple of the scenarios there that were in confined space. And, you know, I could certainly see, okay, maybe the Canadian team that's competing doesn't understand the California state confined space regs. I can buy that for a buck, but the California team that's competing down there, not understanding the California state confined space regs, that's a whole different conversation. Right. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that the California team didn't, but pretty much all 10 teams that did the confined space prop had a different opinion on whether or not there needed to be an attendant, where the attendant, if there was one, could be in or outside of the space, whether or not mo monitoring was required and whether or not ventilation was required. And, you know, coming from Canada, there's a lot of those things that are, are must-haves or you get shut down. So talking to someone like yourself that has a fair background in the confined space world, I'm just looking for some feedback on that for the listener that's out there, if you don't mind. Well, so I think it's, it gets complicated because, you know, like when I teach confined space, if I'm teaching the fire service, we pretty much teach and preach. If we get called to do a rescue, we're going to treat it as a permit required space, right? Cause something went wrong. So we are most likely going to be, you know, using our own permit, doing the monitoring, doing the ventilation, uh, we'll be, you know, we'll assign an attendant, we'll have an entry supervisor or rescue supervisor, as we call it typically. Um, so we kind of treat, like I said, on the fire service side, everything as permit required. Um, it gets a little different on the, the industry side because you can obviously classify it different ways, you know, non-permit, permit, or even the alternate entry procedures uh and they're all a little different so uh i don't know what direction you want to go but again it gets it gets a little convoluted depending on you know who your audience is and what the context of this entry is well let me just not so much rapid fire some questions at you but 
Okay. Does everyone in the United States have to follow OSHA? Uh, so that's a that's another loaded one. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is, and I I mean I'm not an American. It's good to have an American that lives with this deal and deals with it, answers some of these because yeah, like I, said, sure. I get a lot of questions about this, especially with the podcast and stuff. And it's like, dude, I don't know the OSHA regs that well. I don't have to follow them, right? <laughs> right. So so OSHA is is federal. Okay. So federal OSHA will basically apply to to everyone that works in the United States on the private industry side. So if you work for XYZ Energy or ABC Construction as an employee of that company, then you have to abide by OSHA. If you are a state or municipal employee, so, you know, Main Street City Public Works or sewer or something like that, it may or may not apply depending on if, depending on your state's OSHA situation, right? So if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're an OSHA state, for example, then it applies to you. But where I'm at in Pennsylvania, we are a non-OSHA state. So as a state or municipal worker, technically OSHA is not going to come in and find your employer. That's not going to come in and find the state government or the local government. Now, you know, for argument's sake, that doesn't really mean that you should ignore them because it's still a standard, right? So even even if you're not going to necessarily be fined by OSHA, you are. It's still a standard where, in the court of law, especially you know, civil case, when the family sues you, uh, they're going to say, "Well, this is a this is a stand. This is a safety standard in the country. Why aren't you following it?" You know what I mean? So. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it just kind of depends on, on what way you look at it, if that makes sense. Okay. So like you're an employee of a city being a firefighter in the state of Pennsylvania, whose regs or standards do you follow then? <clears throat> uh, well, if, if your local government adopts a consensus-based standard as the rule of law, then you would follow that. Um, but it really it really comes down to your AHJ. I mean, your AHJ is going to choose to follow, you know, we're going to follow NFPA or we're going to follow the OSHA, you know what I mean? As a, as a standard, it really comes down to the AHJ. And it's just, it, it's kind of weird. Like, in, like I was in Jersey today doing a class. Jersey's an OSHA state. So when those guys do confined space, they're really supposed to follow the OSHA standard to a T in Pennsylvania, we're not an OSHA state. So do we follow it? Well, should we follow it? Yeah. But, you know, OSHA is not going to come in and find, you know, the city government for a worker who doesn't abide by the, the standard. Uh, it's it's kind of, it's kind of weird. Yeah. So like you say, the only real crux or the real issue that someone in Pennsylvania might have then would be civil lawsuit. Civil lawsuit, um, there, there have been criminal cases. Uh, I, I've seen a couple recently in the trench and excavation world where the, the business owner was actually charged criminally. Uh, I, I don't have specifics, so I'm not going to 
I'm not going to name states or businesses or anything like that, but, but I have seen cases where people can actually be held, you know, liable on the criminal side too, for not following that standard. So at the end of the day, like I said, I mean, everybody should be following it for one reason or another, you know, and and really the main reason to follow it is to keep, keep people safe. You know, that's, that's why it's there in the first place. Okay. No, and, that, and that's really interesting, you know, from somebody, I mean, we're fairly similar. All of our provinces, health and safety is a provincial level or for your case, a state level. So uh, the classic example I give is rope access is recognized in British Columbia. It's not recognized in Ontario. Right. So loaning employees in Ontario cannot do rope access. I can send British Columbia employees to Ontario, though, and do rope access because they don't claim in Ontario. <laughs> So, I mean, you think it's screwed, it's screwed up everywhere to a lot of extent. Yeah, I've heard you guys talk about that before. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it seems to be kind of pretty standard out there. Um, yeah. Now, you've got permit required, not permit required, and you'd mentioned another one. And what was that? So, the alternate entry procedure. And so, what would that be? So, the alternate entry procedure can basically be used when the only hazard in the space is a is an atmospheric hazard that can be controlled with continuous ventilation. So if there's no other hazardous energy, if there's no engulfment, you know, all those other things that we talk about in confined space, if none of that stuff is there, there's just a potential risk for an atmospheric problem that can be controlled with continuous force ventilation, then you can fall under this alternate entry procedure. And, you know, that got, that kind of waves a lot of the permit required, uh, well, the permit required space requirements, you know, having the attendant, having the rescue team and all that stuff. Now, does it still make sense to have a rescue team? Well, yeah, if you only have one fan running to keep the space safe and the fan takes a crap, well, then you need to get your people out. You know what I mean? Like, so it still makes sense to kind of follow some of those rules. But technically, if you can, if you can document, you know, if your employer documents and can justify following it, then they don't have to comply with all these other permit space requirements. And it's interesting because where I'm from, if someone says they're going in on alternate measures, it means usually live sewer because we're dealing with a space that we cannot lock out. And so we have to have alternate measures in place to protect the worker from not being able to actually isolate the space when we're working. Right. So it's interesting. You come across the border, you work in a different state. You know, we have us companies that work up here, obviously Canadian companies work down there and you could certainly see where just the language would confuse people. Yeah. It, it, it can get confusing. And, and it, it's also confusing because if you look at the, re- the requirements for a permit space or the definition of a permit space, you know, that that first kind of bullet point is contains an actual or potential atmospheric hazard. So right off the bat, you're thinking it's a permit space, which I personally think it should be. But then if you keep reading into the standard, it does allow for this alternate entry, which, you know, lessens up some of the requirements. So it's, you know, not a lot of people really know about it or, or follow it. Like I said, most of the time, if there's an atmospheric problem, then a lot of people just go to that permit space uh, procedure, but it is another, it is technically another 
uh, way you can uh, define a confined space in the states. Right on. And now rescue specifically. Now let's go with the industrial team, like a, a standby rescue team that gets hired out. Does that occur in the states? Is there a regulation around that says you've got to have the ability to rescue your people from a hole? Yeah, so that's in, um, we actually have two, well, there's more than two, but the two big ones in OSHA are 1910-146, which is for general industry. That, that one's been around forever. And then, well, not forever, but it's been around the longest. And then in 2016, I think they came out with the 1926 subpart AA, which is the confined spaces and construction standard. And both of them require a rescue service to be uh, able to respond. Uh, I forget the, you know, it, they use like the prompt terminology or whatever. Uh, and basically, if you dig into it, they if it's an IDLH atmosphere, the rescue service should be able to respond immediately. Uh, if it's something, you know, like a, like a broken bone or something like that, then I think they wrote in a letter of interpretation like 10 to 15 minutes. So either way, it's pretty quick. Either way, you probably want your rescue team to be actually on site standing by. Now, can they use 911 as a rescue team? They... Are not supposed to. Um, a lot of people do, but that does not meet the intent of either OSHA standard because one, you have to have that prompt response. And if you call, you know, uh, you know, Main Street Fire Company, who's not to say they're not out on a fire alarm, you know, or a, you know, a gas leak or something else. So they, you have to be able to guarantee their availability or they have to call you on the phone every time they're going to go on a call and tell you, hey, we're not going to be available for the next 30 minutes because we're going to a fire alarm. So you're going to have to pull all your people out of the confined space. And let's be honest, they're not, you know, people aren't going to be pulling their people in and out of a space based on the fire department's call volume for that day. So that's, you know, between the response time and really the availability, then they're not really supposed to be using 911. And that's obviously not even getting into the fact that not every fire company does confined space rescue. So, you know, those are really the three big ticket items that will prevent an employer from using 911 as their rescue plan. Does that stop them? No, but, you know, one day when something happens and OSHA comes in and realizes what they did, they're going to get fined extra for, for having 911 as their rescue plan and not having an on site rescue team. Okay. And now, is there anything in the standards that says to what level or to what type of training that industrial rescue team needs to be held to or needs to do? The, the standards basically just say they have to be able to perform a rescue from the types of spaces at that facility. And it actually puts the responsibility on the employer. So the employer of, that, of the workers who are going into the confined space it's the employer's responsibility to, to evaluate the rescue team's capabilities. So they're supposed to look at the rescue team and say, do they have the right equipment? Uh, do they have, you know, the means of responding in a prompt manner? Do they have the skills necessary to perform rescues from the confined spaces we have here at our facility? Um, so there isn't really, it doesn't reference a specific standard per se. It doesn't say NFPA 1006 or whatever. 
Uh, it just says they have to be able to do the types of rescues that are at that facility. And again, it puts that responsibility on the employer. Okay. And for everybody that's from Canada that's listening to Bill here, within two degrees of separation, these are the same as the Canadian regs pretty much across the country. You can't call 911. The employer has to be able to provide first aid and evacuation for any worker in a confined space. It has to be done in a timely fashion. Those people have to be trained to do it. So there's nothing really new and shocking on either side of the border in this conversation. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, the standards down here, you know, the, the general industry and the construction standards, you know, there's some minor differences, but on the rescue team side, you know, they're, they're pretty consistent. They, they want a team, you know, basically on site, on standby that can respond right away and they can get the job done. You know, that's ultimately that's, that's it. I mean, there's, it does get like some, some random specifics as far as like, when you need to have a mechanical device for retrieval, you know, if the, if the people are more than five feet in depth uh, into the space and things like that. But for the most part, it's, it's, they need to be, they need to be evaluated by the employer. They need to be given the information about the spaces. Uh, technically they're supposed to be given access to the spaces to pre-plan. And then, you know, they need to be competent. Um, those are really the big, the big requirements for the rescue teams. And that's pretty similar to up here. Um, they give lectures at like construction safety um, meetings and things like this. And I've been asked a question and I said, you know, if you're concerned about the team that you hire, just take a hundred pound backpack and throw it in the space and tell them to go fetch. Right. And I get a call from one of the people that I've given this lecture to. And she goes to me. So I did what you asked about this team. I'm like, oh, excellent. How did it work out? She goes, well, if you guys could come here and get it out of the space, it would be great. You guys could have the contract then. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, how you know, how does the that responsibility is on the employer? So how do they, how do they realistically do that? Because you know, even if they, let's say you're you're, they want to they want to bring you in as the rescue team, and they say, okay, well, we're gonna do a scenario on this day. Can you guys be here? Well, I mean you're probably going to try to send your best guys, you know, your best guys and girls that day. But, you know, if you're providing rescue services, you probably have multiple employees doing the service. So, you know, is it, is it wrong for the employer, like not to evaluate every single team, you know, that, that could possibly come to their site? I don't know. I've never really, never really dug into it in that much detail. I'm not sure if OSHA has or not, but, you know, I know when I was involved with this stuff in the past, there were some days where I worked with guys that were super squared away. And other days I worked with people who I was like, oh boy, you know, if I got to get someone out of this space, how am I going to do this? So, you know, it's, it, it's difficult, you know, but again, OSHA puts that responsibility on the employer. I mean, it's similar up here, what you're saying. And I think everybody needs to remember OSHA, WorkSafe, MOL in Ontario, insert your WorkSafe you know, regulation here, it's a minimum standard. It is the minimum standard you have to meet. And generally we find when we go do these long time, long-term turnarounds, you might do a rescue scenario in the first week, maybe six weeks or so later, but it's a minimal interview, inter interview interval because they don't want to eat up time. But to right. your point specifically, 
our staff, when they find out they're getting a scenario on site, I mean, they'll show up to the shop and pre-train it. Like they're, I could send anybody at that point because they're nervous as hell because they know if they get thrown off that site, good luck getting any more work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, like you said, it's, I mean, the other thing in the OSHA standard is that, that the rescue team has to do a minimum of an annual refresher. Or they have to practice rescue skills once every 12 months or however it's worded. Well, again, that's, that's the bare minimum. You know, you should obviously be practicing these skills a lot more than that, especially if you're a professional rescue service. Right on. I'm going to change gears completely now and hit a bit of a tangent with confined space. Your thoughts on cable winch systems for rescue? Um, I, I personally don't really use them a whole lot. I, uh, you know, my background in the fire service, I'm, I'm heavy on the rope side. Um, so I don't, I don't know if I can go into much further, but, but I always kind of prefer to use that, you know, that life safety rope that I feel comfortable using, uh, you know, the four to one or, or, you know, some other change of direction type of system, but I'm, I'm more of a rope guy for sure. And is that just predominantly from the background, your background or? Yeah, I think that's just my bias and, and background to be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, that's just kind of where my head still, still operates. Okay. Are you guys using them? Um, a little bit. The biggest issue we have is with those, you really have to stay in the footprint of your davit arm or your tripod because there's not a wire rope manufacturer out there that will let you run wire over an edge. Right. And where with rope, as you're well aware, you can, you pat it out, you can get away with it. Right. And so if you're directly underneath the extraction device, yeah, wire rope all day long, not a big thing. I bring it up because I talk to people like Hugo Tripp with uh, Safe Trip in Bremen, Germany. And Germany's basically just outlawed knots for industrial rescue. Um, really? Yeah, it all has to be sewn terminations or wire rope now. And you wonder where the world's going to go with this, right? So I just, you know, I like to see where different places in the world geographically are in regards to this. No, yeah, I mean, I'm still using most, I mean, I'm still a rope guy, the guy. I mean, like, I mean, it's just so much more versatile. I mean, like you, like you just gave an example with the edges, um, you know, it's just, it's so nice, you know, and the, the, the big thing you've seen a lot of pictures of is the, you know, some people are calling it the bat wing. Uh, I typically just call it like the English re variation of, of setting up the tripod. You know, yeah. just having the luxury of doing things like that and keeping, you know, keeping the, the actual hauling aspect of it outside of the, away from the tripod, you know, it's just more versatile. Um, so I'm more of a rope guy. And the one thing I do find interesting is some of our younger folks, so we call them the kids, but I mean, they're young 20s trying to get on the fire that work for us, mostly in our rescue teams. And they prefer rope, but they prefer the winch. Like when they're running systems you'll see them grab the harkin winches i, yeah. I use harkin because that's what we have right, right. Um, predominantly they'll still run the change of directions and stuff but a lot of the stuff's run off winch yeah that's definitely gonna be you know i think the next trend or 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 change in the industry and and, and fire service you know the problem with that is 
and, and I don't I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but you know, again, a lot of this is gonna come down to cost for a lot of departments, especially on the fire side. So, you know, it's it's relatively cheap to be able to build a three to one or a four to one, uh, you know, compared to buying a, a winch like that, you know what I mean? And it's funny, I mean, we're almost full circle when you talked earlier about, you know, Tatum Prusik Belay for your belay system is cheap. The right. more engineering you put into the problem to remove the human factor, to make the human factor less of a factor, the more costly the device becomes. Exactly. Um, and, and I try to, you know, I, and it's funny you mention that because that's one of the big things that I preach when I teach rope classes is, you know, yeah, I emphasize, you know, it's great. You know, we can raise and lower without doing all these fancy switches and load transfers and stuff. Um, so it, it makes life easier, but I also really try to focus on, it makes things safer too, you know, and, and it, because I think when I explain things that way, the light bulbs go off over top of the, you know, the white hats, the, the chief helmets and they're like, oh, wow. Okay. This isn't just some fancy trendy, you know, gadget that they're trying to sell. You know, it actually has a, a pragmatic, you know, reason behind it and that it makes things safer so i i definitely try to emphasize that when i teach yeah and it's it's funny how this is going when we did the asap on english reeve testing a couple years back both petzl and in our shop we had some of our full-time staff that were there helping with this and we had them operating the old prusik system on the english reeve and none of them i mean there's these are people that have i mean minimum they have to have rope and confined space tech and sprat level one and none of them had operated a re or a, not a reef, sorry, a prusik. <laughs> really? And you and like it's like brake hands. I mean, if I let go of my brake hand when I learned on an eight, you died. That was just basically how it worked. Oh yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they they cheat the system a lot. I mean, you've got these systems coming out now that, I mean, like the Firefly, this three point eight mil bailout system, it works better without a brake hand. Hmm. And it's amazing where. You know, a lot of these skill sets, and you mentioned change over there. I, I bet you there's a generation of rescuers that are young right now that don't understand what the term changeover even means. Oh, for sure. It's it, it's, it's funny because, you know, I've, and I've had this conversation with people before, you know, well, what should we be teaching? Should we be teaching the eights and the racks and the load release and hitches and, and all that stuff? And there's still a lot of people, especially around me, we really strongly believe that that is what we have to teach first. We have to we have to give them a forty hour rope class just on that stuff before they're even allowed to touch, you know, a Petzl ID or MPD or you know now the clutch and and stuff like that. Whereas I, I'm kind of the opposite. Um, you know, obviously if a department brings me in to do a class and they don't have that fancy stuff, I'm going to teach them with what they have. But at the same time, like, I really think, and, and even though I, I hate selling stuff, but, like, I really think that these departments, they need to be using the newer stuff, right? Because it does make things so much more efficient and more safe. But at the same time, they still need to be able to think critically, right? They still need to be able to pass a knot. They still need to be able to have a backup plan in case you know, that device isn't ideal for whatever scenario, you know what I mean? Um, but 
you know, I don't, you know, when I start a class, the first thing I pull out is empty eight and LRH and Prusix. You know what I mean? The first thing I pull out is usually like the Petzl ID or something like that. So it's, it's interesting to see different people's opinions. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, geographically and everything, it just makes so much difference as to how people do the job. Right. Exactly. All right. Um, before we ring off here, is there anything else you want to throw out at this? I appreciate you coming on. I knew I threw a couple of tangents at you there, but anything else? <laughs> um, one thing I do want to just mention, and I want to give a quick plug in, is I forget when it was, but uh, I think Craig did a podcast with uh, the Women in Rescue group, yep. uh, Aspen and, and Cassie. Yep. So um, I'm actually, so I actually, after that podcast, it was really eye opening for me, you know, with with a young daughter at home and, and thinking about, you know, the world she's going to grow up in. So I actually, you know, I had some, some conversations with, with the women in rescue group and I actually have a women's only tech rescue weekend in March. Um, hold on, let me figure out, I forget the date. It's March, uh, March 19th to 20th, 2022. Whereabouts? Uh, it's going to be in Westchester, PA, outside okay. of Philadelphia. So um, I just wanted to give a plug out there for that. And also, you know, a thanks for you guys for putting stuff out like that to make us all think about, you know, what we're doing. And it's funny, throughout this podcast tonight, I've said guys a bunch of times and a couple of times I've tried to catch myself. But, um, you know, that's, you know, that, that type of podcast with, with, you know, the women from Women and Rescue, I think is going to be, important for us to get better as a as an industry and, and as a society as a whole yeah and it's it's interesting i mean three points on that i i i got some feedback from that particular uh, podcast <laughs> i'm sure you did <laughs> and, uh, i mean i started my career out as a soldier which was not the biggest women inclusion area in the world i i was in the infantry right um, and then I went to the fire service, which was also not really the biggest women inclusion area in the world. And I had this conversation with this particular gentleman, and I won't say who he is or where he's from or anything like that. And I said, you know, I agree with a lot of your points, what he was bringing up. I said, but I get stuck on this. There is an entire segment I mean, my SAR team. It's over 50% female. There's an entire segment of this community in which I partake in that don't feel that they matter. And I, I don't know what to do with that. Like I, I yeah. can spin that around my head. I mean, I'm a pretty opinionated and harsh individual. I've been called lots of names in my life, but I, that's just something I can't really wrap my head around is right. Th these are good people and they, they feel completely useless and if that's i'm not putting that word out but that's how you know the impression i'm getting from them the second part of this is we sent i mean these kids we talk about these early 20s that are trying to get into the emergency services and stuff we sent abby and katie out onto a job one day and abby calls me and i'm like is there a problem she goes i'm hoping not but there certainly were a lot of heads turned when two you know like early 20s females showed up to this construction site to do rescue standby <laughs> and we laugh about it and you know abby's abby's 
really good. I mean, she was our patient at Grimp this year. Our Grimp team's half ex-military. So you, she, I mean, she's got thick skin, but it's, it's one of these things where it's still looked on like we're in 2022 almost. And yet I said yeah. two young twenties females who are both Sprat level ones, rope rescue technicians, confined space rescue technicians. Hell, one of them has been to Grimp and we get, they get looked at on site. Like they got four heads. Yeah. Like I said, it's not just the industry. It's the society as a whole, you know, when, you know, I, like I, like I said, I want my daughter to grow up seeing women doing this type of stuff. Um, so that it's normal. You know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's better for the next generation. Absolutely. Um, it just, I, I, I honestly don't know how we get there probably because of my genuine, my age and, race and sex and you know it's uh i'm growing up in a certain environment my entire life right and it's right, just exactly I, and I, I just don't know what the answers are to some of these questions and you know be interesting to follow up and my third point is if you uh send me a link to that i'd love to get it up on our social media i just think yeah. these are good ideas and like i said i that podcast there was times you know i, I cringed at some of the stuff and the feedback we got, but it, like I say, at the end of the day, it just comes down to there's, there's this segment of our, of our craft that just don't feel like they're getting the support they need. Yeah. It's 50% of the population, right? So, yeah. And so good on you for doing that, Bill. I appreciate that. Yeah. No problem, man. Uh, anything else? Um, I think that's, thanks. Thanks again for having me. It's been a blast. Uh, where, like, where can like, folks get a hold of you if they want to reach out? So I am on I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Um, I have a Twitter. I don't really. I have a social media thing that posts on Twitter, and I usually forget to check it. But um, definitely Facebook and Instagram, and then my website is eldertechnicalrescue.com. Um, they can reach out to me any of those ways, and I'll answer whenever you want. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. All right, man. Thanks. Appreciate it.